Babality! In honor of Mortal Kombat, what's the most over-the-top on-screen fatality? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with the part in Game Night, where Rachel McAdams watches a guy get sucked into the engine, and, and then also the part in Eurovision, where she watches Demi Lovato blow up on a boat, both of which deaths she's very happy about, but can't really Do you think really that's in her rider? She requires yeah. people to blow up. Um, yeah. I am Matt Patches. I guess this is not so gratuitous, because I just rewatched the clip. But it really felt impactful at the time, which was Lizzie Kaplan dying in Cloverfield when I think she just – she's like, I don't feel so good, and then explodes in blood. Like mm-hmm. behind a curtain though maybe? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, definitely was, behind a curtain. It, I felt it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> hey, it's me, David the Seven, and speaking of exploding, I'm going to pick Charlie from The Stuff because he like explodes with stuff. You should definitely Google this if you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, and I am David Ehrlich, and as sad as I am that nobody went with Brad Pitt's death in Meet Joe Black, a classic, I am going to go, sure, but he doesn't get hit by two cars, one after the other, without touching the ground in Burn After Reading. Uh, I am going to go with Paul McCrane of ER fame's death in RoboCop, uh, at the end, when he is turned into an acid swamp thing monster and then beaten horribly uh it is truly gruesome in a way that only paul verhoeven could do it rules caps off a masterpiece what can you say paul McCrane, robocop gentlemen you can't fight in here this is the war room fine i can hear you now dimitri clear and plain and coming through fine i'm coming through fine too eh good then well then as you say we're both coming through fine good well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 345. It's Pandemic 57. It is the week of Wednesday, April 21st, 2021. That is the day in 1956 that Elvis Presley's first number one hit, Heartbreak Hotel, made it to number one in the Billboard charts. Everyone's... Yay! Podcast, Easy music break boom. week. Um... I didn't ask beforehand if we had any reviews, so I don't know if I'm ready for Star Wars Galaxy Quest. Well, Katie, I got some good news for you, and I got some bad news for you. The bad news is that we don't have any (gasps) new reviews. The good news is that I now get to monologue for somewhere, let's say, between 60 and 90 seconds about what's happening in Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes this week. Do-do-do-do-do. It's Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. Update minute. Is there a story? Uh, Currently, would you shut your hole so I can educate you? (laughs) We are currently somewhere, I'm not sure exactly where, in the current season of the championships, the Grand Reader Championships, which are an ongoing thing. They've cycled through the various seasons. I am your humble co-host. I'm not sure if Dave Gonzalez is participating in this. I'm going to ask him in a second. But I am currently in Division 2, which is where they placed me because of my... GP, don't worry about it. Uh, wow. and, um, is that a bribe or not? Things? I don't know if that's supposed oh, to be it's, good or bad. It's Katie, is this like Pokemon cards Katie, if you know, you know. It's a brag. Um, and <laughs> I'm in my Division 2. I'm in the Erodium uh, level, which I believe is the second from the top of the... The second uh, biggest losers of the five this game. Of the five uh, classes, the five divisions within each division. Um, I'm kind of on a hot streak right now, like my beloved New York Rangers. I've won five of the last six matches i'm looking forward to what's happening next trying to collect all the fucking bad batch losers who i don't know or care about and uh, are you gonna watch the bad batch because of this uh, hell no (laughs) and um and you know i think you know what's most pressing on my mind and i know what so many of our listeners are concerned about is that uh, i really haven't prioritized getting the um the galactic legend characters and some of the the really powerful characters you need in order to get them like your jedi knight luke skywalkers i haven't really what used the fuck please mine. leave reviews leave really reviews for the show why are you doing to, this to, to get the wampa shards that i needed to have there was enough. a whole jkl bug this week that closed down conquest early it was real oh, frustrating stop. No, no, I, now, now now we turn to our uh, galactic war correspondent oh no D- dave's right the that is the conquest. The war is the daily event. The conquest of the multi-week events. Dave, what happened there? Uh, so they're launching a new uh, top-tier game mode that's supposed to like work every two weeks out of the month. Uh, it's called Conquest, but uh, it's based on an idea where you use this thing called stamina as well as energy to um, play your characters so you don't spam your most powerful characters all the time. You're supposed to switch it around. Uh, the problem was when you get less stamina, it brings all the stats of your characters down. And for some reason, 
if you use Jedi Knight Luke, JKL, in the conquest, his stamina would go down across the game, so it fucked up a lot of people's <laughs> grandoriness and territory wars and stuff. It was karmic. So they just payback. canceled the event and gave everybody top rewards. I still don't understand what you do in the game. Karmic payback I... for everyone who was able to get him, unlike me, who did not experience that problem. Uh, Patches, we can talk about that on the next episode of Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes <laughs> Minute. Uh, if our listeners don't leave reviews, we're all at, you know, just to kick off, just to, to end this segment here, very much looking forward to when. This month's conquest relaunches. Uh, I was pretty far into the current one before the bug stalled it out, but uh, looking forward to getting back in there uh, and maybe never talking about it again on the show. If you guys leave us some reviews, go get them. So Qui Gon Jinn. Qui Gon blows. Well, since my baby left, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street that heartbreak hotel. Um, I watched the movie Wanderlust because Patches told me to because he had watched it on HBO Max randomly. And basically the sentence, he's a creature of the beltway, gave me an undeniable desire to rewatch this movie. And uh, guess what? It paid off. That movie is fucking hilarious. I cannot believe we don't talk about it the way we talk about What Hot American Summer. And uh, what streaming service is We don't talk about it at all, yeah, right? It, like, this movie has completely... Uh, I was, uh, you know, I was scrolling through HBO Max, landed on this, saw it, I'm like, wait, we loved this movie. My, my wife, Michelle, and I saw this together when we, I think, guess, first started dating almost. Um, saw it at a press screening, absolutely roared with laughter the whole time. I'm sure all of you were there. Yeah. Um, and then uh, this movie not. came out in 2012. This was kind of like... I feel like I got in a, a bit of an argument with somebody on Twitter at, while watching the movie or after watching it. <laughs> great was like, use of your time watching a good yeah, comedy. Yeah, great use of my time. I believe it was the esteemed critic Richard Brody. No, no. The, Richard Brody will come up later in this conversation. Okay. Richard Brody of The New Yorker also uh, flew into my mentions last night. Oh, boy. But someone was arguing with me that Jennifer Aniston was not, has never been famous and is not a star, and there was no reason to think a movie like this would do very well. I what? completely disagree with this thesis. Jennifer Aniston was super famous. She had, like, were the Millers around this time, and she had role, or not role models, um, horrible bosses. Like, she was the person you hired to make new leading men kind of function, I think. Um, she was always, she has never led, like, her own really successful movie where she is the only person on the, on the marquee, but she is super famous, and this movie should have worked. Her and Paul Rudd from Judd Apatow producing and David Wayne, reu- the director of Role Models and Wet Hot. of like, the object of my affection, classic yeah, rom-com of the 90s. Yeah. People were waiting for this for centuries. Um, why did this movie bomb? I cannot understand why this movie bombed. Do you? Does anyone remember I mean, this why movie is this movie bombed weird. and then faded into obscurity? Like this movie is strange. It is a movie that like shows Ken Marino chasing after a car and then lingers on him like huffing and puffing, running down a street for like fifteen seconds too long. Like it's weird in the way that a lot of David Wayne stuff. But a trailer is doesn't need to sell that. Like a trailer can make this movie look conventional, right? I mean, this movie came, this movie is like a like ensemble comedy that like you know it came before they mostly died out in Katie, theaters. If you're gonna like, cite a scene, IP. I just we just have to do a little quote real quick um, when when we're going through the scenes here, which is when the nudist, uh, which is not played, but well, you're, Ken Marino. Is there a scene when he chases after the car? I was yeah, no, Ken Marino is the, the asshole brother-in-law chase. Oh no, you're, no, you're thinking, thinking of Joel Trulio naked. Right, right, right. When he's naked, running after them, and then later he's like, "I'm a nudist," and they're like, "Yes, we noticed your penis," and he's yeah. like, "Touche." His penis is in a uh, lot of that. I don't penis. think that is his real penis. It is absolutely not his real penis. <laughs> it's a very big penis, and I'm not saying Joel Trulio doesn't have a big it, penis. It, I'm it's just also saying a it's a cons- very big one. It, but it's not even the size. It's a conspicuously fake penis, which is, I think only adds to the humor of it. But go on. But yes, this movie is weird. It is not IP, like for the same reason that so many movies like this, you know, like it would have premiered on Netflix, like if it had come out six years later. Um, but it's weird that it doesn't have a legacy. I think that's the thing that surprises me more than the fact that it was a box office failure. This is but- its legacy. It's legacy HBO Max is in the legacy business. Uh yeah, I mean, this movie is a stone-cold masterpiece. It's unassailable. It's a perfect film. Uh, I completely missed the boat when it was in theaters, but it made its way to its cable rotation, I guess, later that year when I still lived in, uh, on 2nd Avenue with, with a couple of other people, and it would just instantly made its way into that forgetting Sarah Marshall, Judd Apatow-flavored rotation, um, and we became obsessed with it. Uh, basically, every line is funny, 
Alan every Alda line is funny. Like, basically, every line in this entire money, in the entire movie is funny, uh, including Alan Alda, our, our greatest comedy legend. I mean, Alan Alda has been funny in many things, but uh, he has a conversation about <laughs> the value of money with Paul Rudd. <laughs> just, and every time he named people who signed the deed, Patches, do you want to do the deed? You bought the deed. <laughs> Thank you. Um, that's that's uh, what's her, what's her name from Reno nine one one? Carrie Kenny Silver. Carrie Kenny repeating like a ten yeah. year old boy's uh, line reading of "You bought the deed." It's very very funny. I mean, Wait, everyone. One, this cast is incredible. We gotta step back for one second because there's a very 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 good chance that people who listen to the podcast have never seen Wanderlust, which is a pretty conventional movie. It's like Paul Rudd, Jennifer Aniston playing a couple who they live in New York City. They get the micro loft of their dreams and then it's the financial craze like or the, there's a recession they lose all their money they have she's to trying to sell a documentary about, HBO. about penguins testicular uh, cancer penguins with testicular cancer to uh, HBO and they are not interested that scene is incredible and she's like oh what do you want me to do get like hookers to cry and show their boobs and then the, the, the HBO exec is like well I, I think you're joking but if you could get that we would be the year after Game of Thrones so like yeah. even before or like HBO had really gotten nailed for that reputation. Uh, and then, of course, they go to Atlanta and move in with Ken Marino, who is the worst human imaginable. My, uh, you're fired. Michelle... Okay, I'm kidding. You're rehired. <laughs> I'm the boss. Uh, Ricky Licky Suck My Dicky is his great line. Um, <laughs> Ken Marino, I, I, I did not realize this at the time, he co-wrote this movie with David Wayne. Oh, genius. Um, so this is coming from a personal place for him, I guess. But yeah, they moved down to Atlanta. You're questioning me? Him. Don't question me. <laughs> Every line, every line. Uh, and and his house, one of the great gags of the movie is not a line. It is Ken Marino's house in Atlanta, which is uh, traditionally, as all the houses in Atlanta, just huge. I don't know if you've ever gone to Atlanta, but everyone has a big house. It's very strange. I don't know if um, that's true for everyone. Money, okay, not everybody. Southern like, McMansions Money goes are much further there than up here in the Northeast. Um, yes. They have a lot of McMansions, and his McMansion is just full of televisions. Every shot of the movie has eight TVs in the background <laughs> playing some sports channel, and it's... Just an amazing visual gag, um, but obviously Rudd and Aniston get really sick of this, and they and they end up in a commune, a, a hippie. No, it's they refer to it as an intentional community in the crunchy uh, language of, of Elysium, which uh, Alan Alda founded. And Justin did this Thoreau. come before the uh, the movie with Jodie Foster in the sky? I think it did. I think like maybe by a year. Wait, or Wait, but Patches, Alan Alda didn't found Elysium by himself. Oh no, no, no! Oh, I got no. this right. It was Jerry Beaver, it was Stephanie Davis, <laughs> Ronnie Shames, Danielle Meltzer, Janie Brody, Billy Marcus, Glenn Stover, Tony Pulaski, and Janice Wu. Hey, you can never uh, forget about Janice Wu. No. <laughs> oh, I think his line about Janice Wu is, "How can I remember where the deed is? I didn't fuck her like Janice Wu." <laughs> <laughs> um, just amazing. Uh, but yeah, and Justin Thoreau, again, flashbacks like, oh, wow, this is before the Thoreau-Aniston gossip love tryst or this whatever. This is where they like, met. such a big thing. I know, this is where they met. And yet this movie has absolutely no legacy whatsoever. Uh, and Justin and Thoreau so is hot as shit funny. in this movie. No wonder they got together. I was wondering, is there another character he's done that's like this? It seems very familiar for him to be playing this kind of over-the-top buff sex mm. object who lives off the Moron. Land. He's, he's yeah, like, total moron. He's so, yeah, he won the Oscar for this, right? Like, yeah, I'm not misremembering so. that. Yeah. No, that's he's right. so, I just, so there's a good. scene where they move into the commune for the first time and they realize their room doesn't have a door on it. And they're talking, and then like Justin Thoreau pops back into the room after delivering them, and they're like, "Oh, I was, I was just standing outside. There's no door, so I thought I could come in." Uh, it's just like every the geography of the movie is hilarious. The state, like the production design of the movie, is hilarious. Every ounce of this movie is hilarious. Jordan Peele is one of the people who lives there, and he has a uh, long interaction with Paul Rudd when Paul Rudd is taking a shit. Again, there are no doors, there are no boundaries. There are no, and then, and then uh, there are no divides between back down in front of him. There's a whole room full of people just waiting for him to take a shit. Um, <laughs> oh, it's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful, and Catherine Hahn is in the movie. Catherine uh, Hahn is I feel like she so is just funny in that movie. Blowing up for all sorts of other is, reasons, not related I mean, to why she's wonderful in this. This is why, if you're watching, if you're watching WandaVision and you're like, I guess Catherine Hahn is the best part of this, but I'm not sure if I quite understand the praise for this insipid television show. Uh, Wait until you say, see her say homos. Oh my God. <laughs> she won, I think, two Oscars for this movie. Um, and a third was just given in advance for being snubbed for private life. Um, but it's, uh, she's spectacular. Um, who, I mean, there are so many, 
so many brilliant performances. Lauren Ambrose yeah. is Lauren really Ambrose. funny. Ambrose in this movie. We were Jordan trying to Hill's figure partner. out like what where'd Lauren Ambrose go? She was on she Broad. Theater. She was she in was My Fair Lady, Lady for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd have to imagine that people who really worship at the altar of Wet Hot American Summer know this movie front to back or have at yes. least given it a shot because the sim- the humor is so similar. But uh, if that is in you or if you remember Enjoy Wet Hot American Summer of Nazi Wanderlust, by all means, make it happen. The scenes where uh, David Wayne and Mike Lee and Black and Michael Showalter are playing the creepy news anchors who just like keep getting grosser and grosser on the air is so oh, funny. And Katie, how have we not talked about, I think, what is inarguably the most iconic scene in this movie, which if you haven't seen the film, surely somewhere in the back of your mind, you remember seeing a clip of this, which is Paul Rudd trying to hype himself up to have sex with Malin Ackerman and yeah. standing in the window, in the mirror rather, talking about his Dioc. My Dioc. Now here's, here's the thing that, so Ro- Richard Brody slid into my DMs. No, he was in my mentions. Two, two different things. My badge. Um, and he said, his criticism, he sent me his review. It was really intense. Wow. Thank you, Richard. I, I, you were an esteemed critic. I defend you in all conversations where people call you a troll. I want you to know this. But you're so fucking wrong, Brody, about this one. His <laughs> review from 2012 is like, it's derivative of every Italian comedy. Improv is not funny. You cannot improv your way to great one-liners and great bits and, and great revelations in the comedy form. And this movie could not be further from that. Like, this is not a movie where people are just maybe that that Rudd scene where he's like There's saying "dick and badge" in different oh, yeah. voices. Oh, I mean, there, but, like, this is not an improv movie. This patches. is a meticulously I've, crafted. There is that you're not movie. quite. That's not quite right. Uh, I have, there is a cut of this movie that, like Anchorman, the whatever cut consists almost entirely of. Uh, the wake up other Ron takes. Burgundy version of this. Yes, yeah. uh, there are many, many other takes. And in, and in Richard's defense, it is typical when you're like sort of a critic in the trenches, seeing four movies that you have to file about a week. With comedies, sometimes it just doesn't hit you in that moment, and then uh, you see people flipping out over it. And uh, this is something that I find really pronounced in the in the Netflix age when I am watching something like Barb and Star or Eurovision, and just kind of sitting there you know, stone-faced and vaguely appreciative of what it's trying to do, and then people are doing backflips online, and I'm like, I guess I just like wasn't really locked in in the way that I needed to be. We're seeing it with the right crowd. Comedies can be hit or miss like that, but uh, this one is all hit all the time because it's a fucking masterpiece. It's called Wanderlust. It's on HBO Max. Your life is shit if you haven't seen this movie. Go make it happen. It's true. It's a creature of the Beltway. It's a creature of the Beltway. Belton's been in Washington, D.C. this whole time. I'm rolling through Madeira and Abima, looking clean and drinking on the blueberry slurpee, eating that fajita. My passenger seat is occupied by Senorita, and my mother keeps on bugging me about wanting to meet her. I don't really need her. I'm just trying to treat her world nice. Uh, for our mini segment tonight, I have forced myself into the the driver's seat here because I'm going to self-promote. I'm going to shamelessly self-promote, but maybe Always there's a bigger topic plugging. here. You'll have to tell me if there's a bigger You, you don't have to spit table. it out into a bigger topic. Maybe just, there's just a big thesis piece. here. Maybe there's, maybe there's bigger questions on the table here. I don't know. Matt Patches can't stop creating the sophisticates, <laughs> is my galaxy brain thought for this segment. It's true. It's a, it's a little true. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of teased this on the podcast last week, and because we don't have ads on this podcast, I feel like I can do this. But um, I, uh, actually, it was almost two years ago uh, that some of them at my job at Vox Media and Polygon was asking me, like, what do I still want to see in the podcast space? And I said, there's absolutely no room for podcasts because fighting in the war room exists. Like, yes. what could we possibly <laughs> – what could you do beyond the form of what we've created here over 10 years or something? Um, and then my second answer was, like, I don't really listen to that many podcasts. Like, what do you want me to do? Um and and I and they asked me to come up with something that I would want to listen to, and I think I have. I think I've done it. I think I've come up with a show that I find very entertaining that can sit alongside Fighting in the Worm. Certainly, um, a lot of the other movie podcasts that I listen to, that you guys on the call listen to, like our friends at Blank Check, or I'm a big fan of Sean Fennessy over at The Big Picture, or the Flophouse guys, um, all these podcasts that I listen to, and all of them are pretty much chat shows, uh, or like Still Watching with Joanna and everything she does with uh, Dave Chen, too. Um, All these podcasts are 
I think the last few years especially have been everyone figuring out what they can chat about and what they can react to. And in thinking about that, I am trying to break the form or at least come up with something else that everyone who likes those shows would still be able to listen to after listening to those shows. What more can you say or what more can you be entertained by? And that was the big mission here, trying to challenge the form and and bring the pop culture discussion to somewhere else uh, alongside the great work that these people are doing. And uh, the idea here is Galaxy Brains, and it debuts this coming Thursday, April 22nd, I want to say, not looking at a calendar. Um, and it is hosted by Dave Schilling, who is a great friend of mine. He, I met him at Grantland, and he hosted podcasts at The Ringer. He's a columnist at The Guardian. He just produced a YouTube uh, Black History Month uh, special. He's a comedy writer. He used to write for the WWE. The man has done like so many things. It's astonishing uh, how much knowledge he has. I have sat at a bar with him and Jordan Hoffman talking about Star Trek endlessly. Um, so everything is his jam. And um, we he asked me to do the show with his friend Jonah Ray, who I adore because I love Mystery Science Theater 3000. And Jonah is hilarious. I think he's great. Um, and I know because I sat in a Fantastic Fest movie theater with him watching movies that he also loves movies and loves talking about them. And I knew I was not going to host this podcast, but I knew it was going to be something that was an extension of me on some level. This is, if you know me to, to Galaxy Brain on this podcast, you think big. I was teasing and self-owning myself earlier to imagine that there would be bigger topics of the, in this mini-segment uh, beyond my shameless self-promotion. I'm always trying to, to go there and see the, the cosmos uh, of these topics we're talking about. Um, and I, I think this show will get there. The end result that we've come up with that's kind of like part critical analysis and then part thanks to a weekly guest um, and grand theories – it's, it, our, our discussion is more is heavily produced. Um, parts are scripted, and the interviews lend themselves to bigger discussion. It feels like having our guests are less like interview subjects and more living Wikipedia pages who can answer our weirdest questions during the discussion. Um, at times, it feels almost like Colbert rapport in trying to affirm our beliefs or having them thrown back in our faces by actual experts. I feel like there's been a lot of discourse lately in the pop culture uh, podcast space about like authority and showing up with knowledge and like doing the prep work. And um, some of the joys of fighting the worm is that we don't and that we kind of like pull it out our ass and <laughs> chat it up. Um, and this show is accompanying that is it's a compliment, uh, which is we're going to put in a lot of work and we have producers and we have the hosts and Dave, an essayistic mind and Jonah, a comedic mind coming together. And I'm like, I'm just astonished at what's uh, resulted so far, which the hustle has been insane to try and put the episodes together in a, in a short amount of time and, and get it ready to launch. But um, for right now, I, I've been telling people, like, it feels like Radio Lab, which is a weird comparison, I guess. But the, the banter between the two people, our two hosts and the way we're using almost like reporting, uh, we're using our our subjects, our interview subjects to to kind of report out our our theories, our galaxy brain takes uh and the quality of the like the audio work and how it's all strung together it feels like radio lab it's pretty wild to hear um and if you like mystery science theater 3000 i think the humor of it is up that alley too um and there's also a call-in aspect which I, once upon a time we tried to do that on fighting the war room just couldn't convince people to call in so if you want to get that out of your system <laughs> we have a call-in uh we have a dial wait a second no, he's not talking about a live show. He's uh, talking about like show. you leave you leave a message. No, you oh, leave a message on a voice. Because our call in show is a no, raging don't success. Worry. We'll do that. Don't worry, David. Um, but yeah, so Galaxy Brains, it premieres on Thursday, August twenty second or August, oh my god, April twenty second. And um we're I'm really, really excited and thank everybody on this podcast for giving me the space to promote it because I think podcasts here's my here is my Galaxy Brain take that makes this more than self promotion, which is just like the format is evolving. It has to. It's there's so many podcasts and so many of them are the same. We've been doing this for ten years, just talking and talking and talking. I don't think you could do a show like Fighting in the War Room now and convince people to listen to it. That would be very, very hard. You couldn't um, pull off ever this to get... free show that uh <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, you no could resources. you could shoot this into the you could shoot this into the oblivion. You could shoot this into the other, but um, yeah, it, to make it stick, I think it would be very very challenging, and we needed to add it add something to the conversation. I think Galaxy Brains will do that for people. So you don't have this is not uh, taking the place of anything you already listen to. It's joining the roster, and we're keeping the show tight. This is not a two and a half hour podcast. We're about to land like drop on your door every week. This is going to be like a good 30, 40 minute podcast. So you have time for this one, which is also exciting because I feel like I never have time for podcasts. It's just like so, when I see a two hour podcast land on my feet, I'm like, Jesus Christ, keep it. I appreciate that as notes. somebody. Uh, I'm the only person on my other podcast who's like, maybe this shouldn't be two hours long. And people continually write in telling me Some I'm people, idiot. Yeah, so I'm going to appreciate the fuck be, out of Galaxy Brains. Podcasts should be longer unless I am involved in recording them. <laughs> in which case, I see. Now let's wrap it up. <laughs> uh, Galaxy Brains, it's out soon. Go subscribe. Go follow. That's what I hear is the new term for subscribe. We should be using the word follow. Everyone, follow us on Apple Podcasts uh, and such. Spotify's one. Having trouble trying to sleep. I'm counting shit but running out. As time ticks by, still I try. No rest for cops in my mind. On my own, here we go. Hello, everybody. I I uh, am. I've picked. I guess this is my episode to pick something for segment three, and I feel like I didn't have much uh, agency in picking this topic. It was kind of kind of assigned to me, but that is fine. It is a movie that uh, I responded to very strongly the one and only time that I saw it, which was now sixteen months ago. Um, and so I'm really just going to get the ball rolling here, and then and pass pass the conversation along because. Uh, well, I guess on the one hand, um, you know, the movie is not super fresh in my memory. On the other hand, the one time I saw it was enough to burn so much of it into my mind. I'm talking about Florian Zeller's The Father, which has become, I guess, not super unexpectedly kind of an Oscar darling. But I think uh, what's not been a knock against it and really has been since conception, even though it's adapted from a very uh, well-received stage play of the same name, also written and directed by Florian Zeller is that it sounds like the kind of Oscar bait that a Sony Pictures classic and their ilk would put out, um, like The Wife, for example, um, which is uh, not at all what The Father is, you know, even with its roaring Anthony Hopkins performance at the center and Olivia Coleman and Imogen Poots and uh, a, a high-profile cast. Uh, Rufus Sewell. Rufus Sewell, of course, of A Knight's Tale fame, never forget. Uh, and, and they're all in this well-burnished London apartment, and there's a lot of acting happening, and it all seems like something that um, you would recommend to your parents. I mean, we're getting too old to be able to make insipid comments like that, but um, because now we are the parents. But uh, the father is... Um, the long and short of it is that it's a story about Anthony Hopkins. Uh, he plays... Someone in his 80s who is uh, sick with uh, dementia, and it's about his parent, his family, and Olivia Coleman being the most center member of which she's his daughter, who are sort of grappling with his disease. But really, that is only half of what's happening here because it is also a a expression of what it is to be inside of the mind of somebody who is uh, suffering from dementia. And so simultaneously what the movie is doing and in a very sly way is splitting a difference between being a depiction of uh, what it is to love and care for and in some cases live with somebody who uh, has, uh, who is going senile uh, in a very advanced you know, medical way and also to be that person um, and to make sort of the best approximation of what we can imagine it's like from the outside looking in. Uh, and the way that it accomplishes that is in some very tricksy uh, ways that I think could really appeal to a crowd that might not imagine themselves getting hip to this movie, sort of like the, the puzzle box uh, type audience, the Dave Gonzalez's of the world, the nice. Reddit threads. Well, no, I, he has, he loves puzzle like structures and whatnot. Wasn't I a, like puzzle structures. Wasn't sure. a back end compliment. Um, we'll, we'll get there. I have things to say about <laughs> it. Uh, but uh, because 
you start to see the reality of the scenes fade away as, as the movie uh, sort of circles around the same moments and you understand the subjectivity of what's happening and um, begin to lose faith in the objective reality and perspective that you're seeing each film scene from and that stirs feelings of frustration and, and anger and confusion that all sort of mirror the experience um, of being an Anthony Hopkins character's POV, uh, while at the same time looking at this man who you understand to be sort of a, a, a tamed lion, you know, this guy who, who used to be a really ferocious intellect and an accomplished man, sort of wilt before our eyes. Um, and, you know, not to belabor this particular point too much before I pass the baton here, but, you know, this is an experience that I've had firsthand uh, at length with my own father, and uh, it was a, a really... Um, trying time that I've never seen a film that uh, so accurately um, captured, not just in the uh, the details of what happens, but in how they're expressed, the feelings that it conjures, what that experience is like, um, and what it feels like to be dealing with somebody and, and imagining what it's like from the other side of the mirror. Um, and... Uh, and those feelings of somebody sort of slipping away from you and, and how complicated it could be. I mean, it's really uncanny how well this movie simulates the experience. I mean, it's quite an advertisement. I mean, like, see what it's like to uh, slowly lose a uh, loved one from Alzheimer's or something like that for uh, for 100 minutes. I mean, it's it's hard to ima- not hard to imagine why this wasn't exactly a sensation at the box office. Um, but it is an incredibly, incredibly well-crafted and powerful version of what it does. Anthony Hopkins is absolutely extraordinary. Um, I know a lot of the... We're talking about this in the context of the Oscar race because that's really the only context in which movies like this get traction these days. Um, and while Chadwick Boseman you know, is sort of a shoo-in for Best Actor and his performances in... His performance in Ma Rainey and certainly in Five Bloods is worthy of any of that consideration. Um, I think that Anthony Hopkins is naturally being defaulted to sort of like the old white establishment guard performance in, in this race and uh, dismissed in sort of a gimme in the way that Glenn Close's performance in The Wife was is the, the cleanest point of reference. Um, and, you know, not to take any way, anything away from Chadwick Boseman, but I do think that comparison does a disservice to what Anthony Hopkins is doing here. Because this, I think, is, if not the single best performance he's ever given, um, maybe in the top two. Uh, I mean, it's really a career crowning performance um, that never really gets too actory for its own good, even if it always seems like it's right on the precipice of doing so, but is so raw and humane um, and leads this movie into some incredibly uncomfortable and unresolved places. I mean, this is exactly what it says on the tin, and there are not um, happy endings or deus ex machinas that are going to come in and uh, wipe away everything that you've seen in the film to that point. Um, I I just thought that, you know, it's a movie that I was... I struggled with finding value to it, not that it necessarily has to have any beyond so perfectly simulating the experience that, that it's about. But that, for me, given how well the movie does that, was enough an extraordinary object to exist, to show someone um, as an approximation of, of what that experience is like. Uh, so well, also big, if you, big recommendation for me. If you believe in movies, the idea of movies as an empathy machine, then uh, it's hard to beat something like this that allows you to feel empathy for I, someone who's yes. otherwise unknowable. I, wanted, I, I think I, I described it as a cross between Amour and the video game PT, which is a comparison that will make sense to about seven people in the middle of that Venn diagram out there. But those seven people know exactly what I'm talking about. I want to hear Go from on, Dave before I, before I jump in. Uh, yeah, uh, so I got to rent this movie on, uh, VOD, which was nice, because, you know, you get to, <clears throat> uh, approach it in your own time, and I didn't, like, have to take any breaks, even though this movie's a lot. Uh, it's pretty short, I though, guess, right? Like, I remember it being, 97 like, right around, minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, uh, that's... Yes, not technically what I meant. No, by no, no, lot, no. I know. I, I just was it. emphasizing that like it is emotionally intense, but like it doesn't it doesn't drag it out. Yes. Uh, so I would, and then a lot of them are j- because of the nature of uh, both the transitions between the scenes being vague to put you in Anthony's position, uh, or all of a sudden we're dealing with a new set of information uh, that we're absorbing, like in say like a mystery show. Uh, when it starts to focus more on Anne, um, 
there would just be times where like in between beats i'd just have to pause and not like pause and you know like go do something else just like not do anything for a minute and the first time i did that was about like 25 minutes into the film and i was like oh cool this is gonna give me something to hang on to because i have to figure out you know what's real and what's not i am antony that's my position in this uh i just you know seen basically like act one I'm like, cool, let's follow this. Uh, everything David said about Anthony Hopkins' performance is absolutely true. Uh, my grandfather passed away from, like, a dementia sort of disease and even, like, sort of small movements of, like, rub- rubbing his head in different ways or uh, certain uh, motions and topics that become fill words for when you know they're really trying to puzzle something else out and, like, having getting trying to get through to it uh, all started ringing very true. And I was like, okay, I could hang on to the middle of this movie um, by basically following the the mystery box versions of it. Because I am curious, like, depending on what is actually true or not at that point in the movie, he's either, you know, actually being plotted against or he's, like, refusing to let go of, like, some stubborn prejudices or, like, his ability to uh, push people around uh, in his previous life. And I'm like, I want to know what happened to the other sister that he's always referencing and always makes everybody look sad. Like, I want to figure this out. Second time I paused it was about 15 minutes from the end of the movie when I realized that didn't matter mm-hmm. and that the entire movie is just, like, expertly paced and directed to keep you with Anthony Hopkins even as you're splitting out and learning more information And it's just, that's the control. If you were to look at this movie on paper or, like, read the plot description on Wikipedia or something, uh, you're not going to see the magic trick because it's an emotional magic trick of funneling the audience like cattle to where you want them at the end uh, and making that feel like it was, you had a glimpse at the uh, full picture. Maybe we weren't actually funneled, but I think that that's the the masterful part of how this movie's constructed uh, is like it's it manages to like Katie was saying it's a really good empathy machine with all pieces, but it is sort of trying to stick a certain landing, and that landing has less to do with the mystery aspects uh, that initially. I thought, I guess would be a best way to put it. Yeah. This movie made me think a lot about just like what cinema can do. Like it would be a really interesting movie just to show to film students or like really someone who's really early getting the idea of like where the camera plays tells part of the story and like what you are shown, like how editing can tell part of the story. Cause you know, you enter a room from this, from the same camera angle in a new scene and the couch is different and how it draws your attention to that and how it just uses these really simple tricks of how a film is put together to disorient you and to point out to you to what is disorienting or to ally you with one character or another. Like the fact that it's based on a play is not invisible, but it's just, it's so impressive how they took this story that you can imagine perfectly well working on a play and they can swap in sets and stuff like that. But the way that it uses the camera to really enhance that story is so impressive. So it makes it exciting to watch even if it, as it's such this emotionally and devastating story. I mean the real the real magic trick of what he's doing here is that there's no subjective camera but there's also no objective reality. Yeah. And so there the whole movie is sort of this fight for an agreed upon sense of of what's true and what's happening. Yeah. I mean there are not POV shots that are motivated by characters. Um they are all occupying a ostensibly shared space. But it is impossible for the movie in the text of the movie itself to agree upon like what is actually there. Um, and that feeling just snowballs and snowballs and snowballs until the final sequence that David's alluding to, which takes place in this sort of other space. Uh, there's like a, a really amazing scene that I think it, it towards the center of the movie where it really uh, uh, sort of encapsulates uh, the futility of trying to find the reality of the situation through this haze in the middle of the movie where Anthony overhears Anne and her husband arguing about him. He enters the room. They tell him to sit down. The entire scene plays out. He leaves the room. And as he leaves the room, they get into the argument he was having before. And the scene ends with him entering the room and hearing them having the exact same discussion we had heard before. And it's just like, oh, my God, like even there's not going to be another scene uh, 
that show from uh, like uh, that's gonna make me feel like I know if that conversation happened once, yeah. if it was a whole bunch of amalgamations of conversations, you're just automatically in a narrative timeline that's completely separated from any sort of reality, which is great because it's also so contained. You don't create a bunch of needless like plot questions. Like this isn't tenet structure. They're all in the same, you know, they're all in the same space. And that also becomes part of the, the the loop that becomes like so i don't know just emotionally draining yeah because you you, as it keeps going you realize like this is not getting better there's like eventually you learn you know what happened to the other sister or at least something that you feel is close enough to a reality to like have the answer and you're like yeah yeah i I don't see a a way out of this that's going to make me feel better about how this all plays out and then there's also time periods there's also time periods mentioned occasionally. And so I can't really tell how long this entire movie plays out. And I think that's the point, but they're mentioned like a whole bunch of things. Like I was married to one guy for 10 years and then I haven't been married for like five years. So it's possible. It's like 15 to 20 years of this hell loop. And it's really, really depressing by the end of it. Yeah. I mean, I think the the idea of movies as an empathy machine is typically something that you associate with these uh, sort of upbeat movies that put you in somebody else's shoes. It was like, this one does. And, uh, um, uh, you know, fill your heart with, with joy and understanding of humanity. And that is, uh, I don't think that it's an improper comment to level of this movie, but it just comes at it from a very different perspective because uh, you will have empathy for all of the people involved in the story. But um, it, it is really a film that is unflinchingly honest about how cruel life can be and often is um and it doesn't beat you over the head with it again i mean again i think amor and michael haneke is probably uh, a relatively helpful uh, comparison in terms of understanding the tone of the film but um it, it's it's you know it's very confrontational it's not the kind of movie that you, <laughs> that you expect to exist in any of this, these forms and um uh, just completely devoid of sentimentality, um, especially given this subject matter. I can't or, remember or, if there's... Or I, mean, I think Dan- something we should also mention, it's not surreal. Like, we're talking about it like it has, like, loops and stuff. It's not, I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah. No. It's, it's something else completely. Is there a score, Dave? I don't think so. Yeah, I think... I, at least I don't, I don't recall there a score. There might, there might occasionally be, like, a rumbling, uh, because there is, like, some moments where they're using the language of filmmaking like very early on he's making tea and then he hears somebody in his house and he turns around and there's just like a dude sitting on his couch. Hmm. There might be a low level score on that, but there isn't anything like definitely the ending is just dialogue. And I think Um, that like one, one of the, sorry, Katie, go on. I'm just thinking about it more though. Helps me figure out why I use the word empathy for this, because it's not so much about the way that you think of Michael Haneke movie where it's like, here is what life becomes. Here's the futility of it. Like it's more about curiosity about coming from these people's point of views and kind of exploring like what this brain might be like, like it feels humane in a way that Haneke movies don't, where it's, it's kind of trying to be inside someone's head rather than kind of like coldly analyzing this really awful situation. Yeah, it could be like the system is fucked and, you know, humans do this to themselves, but it spends enough time with all of its main characters where you're all like, they're all trying, and if they could try in a way that would make something better, you get the feeling they absolutely would. And sometimes they do, and it just doesn't work out for them, and it's heartbreaking. This is the rare review that I've written, and there really aren't many, that that came out, I think, in a way that I close to what I hoped it, it would. Uh, you know, I ran home from the screening of Sundance and tapped it out in 90 minutes or something like that. Um, but the comments that IndieWire used to have before we shut them down, there's a commenter on the review who is taking issue with one of the things that I said about how the process of watching someone forget themselves seldom allows time for sadness, anger, or any other discernible emotion. And they say, um, no. And I probably could have worded that better, but at the same time, I think it's true in a way, and something that the movie does a really good job of, uh, of, of depicting, is that like when you are dealing with somebody who is suffering from dementia, so much of your energy is devoted to either A, 
keeping up with them and sort of like just staying in the moment and, and trying to uh, prevent harm or to clean up or, you know, whatever the case might be, um, and, and to, to sort of fight for a moment of that shared reality. Uh, and while obviously in the months or years that you're dealing with this, you process virtually every emotion that a human can experience, um, the, the being with them in those moments is so fraught with fighting to reclaim the present in a way that it does kind of blunt out, at least it did in my experience, those those other feelings in those moments. And maybe when you close the door or escape into the bathroom or whatever you need to do to collect yourself for a minute, you can experience those waves of feeling. But, uh, you know, I think something about the sort of anti-emotionality of this movie really resonated with me because it, it's such an active cerebral exercise being with somebody in this condition. Uh, it's not the the flood of raw emotions that you might expect from the outside. It is a constant intellectual exercise to uh, throw a life raft to this person and try to keep them treading water and uh, uh, whatever, based on whatever stimuli or mumbling or can whatever. I, can I yes so, and this a little bit? Please. Uh, I think it, uh, like there comes a point where yes, you want to keep them safe and yes, you want to, you know, treat them as like a human being, but it just becomes like every moment you're trying to rescue their dignity almost. And like this movie, just like watching it crumble, but knowing that's what everybody's trying to do. Everybody's trying to rescue some, except maybe the husband occasionally, depending on how much of that is real. But like everybody's trying to rescue some dignity for Anthony uh, and his flat, but it's just like it's impossible uh, because like there, it's so hard. Like you're talking about to stay on the same page, moment to moment. If you try to convince him wrongly or rightly that he likes his pills, he's condescending. If you try to explain something to him, he thinks that you're talking down to him. It's just oh, everybody trying to meet each other halfway, but that also leaves no established like fact base. And it just becomes everybody looks bad and feels bad because it's, uh, you know, build it, building your house on sand. I just want to say I'm glad that uh, IndieWire shut down comments so that David could litigate his responses on our podcast. I think that's really how. Yeah, that's why they, that's definitely why they did it. Yeah, they knew we um, needed the content. Yeah. Uh, all, all, all websites, except for maybe StereoGum, should shut down websites. Maybe even StereoGum. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but uh, yeah, anyway, The Father is. Uh, is very potent and powerful filmmaking um, if you have the stomach for it. Uh, but it is a movie that I'm glad to see in the awards race. It's the kind of movie the awards race is the best thing that the awards race can really do these days is to help elevate it. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people are, might be avoiding it because they think it's the way. Yeah. And I feel like I mean, it's my job to be yeah. like, no, 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 no. There is a lot more interesting stuff going on here. Right. I mean, there are so many movies that the awards season elevates for that are, it's obvious that that's, what's happening we're so happy about it and movies that wouldn't have gotten the attention they they received if not for the rising tide of oscar buzz and whatnot and then there are movies like the father which seem to be waterlogged by that same buzz uh and it's really unfortunate because it's a great film um and you can rent it i know it's on vod i think for now it's it's the full 20 dollar price which is steep yeah, it's just um, PVOD right now. Yeah, PVOD, but it will, I'm sure, before you know it, be down at a more reasonable price. And it's, it's in somewhere. theaters as well. It is, yeah, in theaters. it is in theaters. If you are safe and double vaccinated and feeling good, wait, double. Two of us, just, David, are you are you double vaxxed? I am getting my second shot very very soon. Same. I think Patches is the first of us to get both shots. Good. So go see the father. <laughs> On me. (laughs) (laughs) Roll it in the vax. Uh, That does it for this week's show. Next week, instead of discussing a movie in segment three, we're going to talk about the Oscars because it's my week. Oh, finally. Yeah, thank God. Uh, No, it's going to be a weird show. It's going to be Soderberghian. This is exciting. There's going to be stuff to talk about. Hopefully someone rides a train. Uh, There's a whole nother pre-Oscars, isn't there? What? That people should watch. What isn't there? There's like more Oscars than ever this year. I think in, there's an hour long special before the Oscars airs on Sunday night that is just them performing the songs. 
and there's going to be like an Icelandic performance of the Eurovision original song. I Am I wrong probably, about this? I should probably. No, I don't think you should know this. This is your job. I can't believe that I know this, Katie. They are doing all of the best original song performances in the pre-show. Right. So they are not part of the actual telecast. Which sucks. And then they, it does suck. Uh, and I don't then, think it sucks because it's going to be one long okay, let's, miasma let's not, of Oscars. Okay, everyone, we're going to talk about this next week. <laughs> and uh, they're going to, just to answer Patch's opening question uh, and you know save face for Katie, they're going to be engraving the Oscars during the post show. That is what we know. Oh, right. You get to watch the celebrities hang out and get their statues engraved. Yeah, uh, I'll be watching. Um, anyway, and we'll be talking about it. So join us next week. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches, where I'll be shouting about at Galaxy Brains on Twitter all week. Um, again, please go subscribe. There's a trailer, so you can subscribe right now. You don't even have to wait until the episodes come out. You can get them automatically on your podcast app whenever uh, they roll around. Uh, right now so and we also you can also get episodes of fighting in the war room if you haven't heard every single episode of this podcast what are you waiting for there's so many you can download them or you can go to fighting in the and listen i'm david ehrlich i'm a senior film critic for indiewire you can find me this week on indiewire writing about bong juno's memories of murder remember when bong juno won the oscars <laughs> that was amazing uh and uh you can find all of us on itunes at Fighting in the War Room, please leave us a review. We'll read it live on the show, and if you don't leave us a review, uh, we're going to talk about Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes for another minute, and you're not going to make idea what we're talking about, and everyone's going to be miserable. Um, I also just want to say that before we decided to let Patches steal our airtime to plug some other podcast, we were going to do a very quick introductory segment about the new HBO show Mayor of Easttown to sort of tease the fact that at the end of that show's seven episode run we're going to be doing a segment about it so if you follow along to the podcast and you want to be caught up for that in six or seven weeks start watching Mayor of Easttown on Sundays at HBO or at on Sunday on HBO at Rather. HBO Patches hey, give us a wait give us some Philadelphia accent I can't I actually can't I like water hey give me a glass of water I can't right. do it I can't believe it, I interrupted Dave I for love this. it and I cannot do it Crick get the water in the Crick <laughs> uh, hey, it's me, David the Seven. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at da seven e. You could also listen to me talk about Lost at the Storm, a Lost rewatch podcast. And yeah, I think it's gonna that's that's gonna be it. We just got through uh, the season five finale, the incident, and then I think next week uh, Joanne is going to talk to Damon Lindelof. So check that out if you like Lost. It's streaming on Hulu. So it's the place that's not giving you HBO Max content in the terms of this podcast. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair and on the Little Gold Men podcast where we'll be talking about Oscar predictions. Uh, maybe they'll be right. Who knows? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R where you can test out your own Philly accent or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Mortal Kombat, what's the most over-the-top on-screen fatality? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. I'll tell you when I'm done. Wonder what you find. Poopa, poopa. Wonder what you find. My fair lady. I'm done.